My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with female and female-identified entrepreneurs, founders, co-founders, business owners, and industry gurus. These podcasts speak with women and women-identified individuals across all industries in order to shed light for those just getting into the entrepreneurial game as well as those deeply embedded within it. Histories, current companies, and lessons learned are explored in the conversations I have with these insightful and talented powerhouses. The series is designed to investigate a female and female-identified perspective in what has largely been a male-dominated industry in the USA to date. I look forward to contributing to the national dialogue about the long overdue change of women in American business arenas and in particular entrepreneurial roles. You can contact me via my media company website, wild.agency, that's W-I-L-D-E dot agency, or my personal website, patriciacathleen.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is your host, Patricia, and today I am sitting down with Rebecca Sager. Rebecca is an award-winning journalist with over a decade of experience covering breaking news, lifestyle, entertainment, and human interest stories. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm excited to get into it with you as well. We've spoken to so many writers, and I know a bunch of people in the audience, um, Everyone, for everyone listening, you guys have really pressed us to find more um, writers out there, and Rebecca is the answer to that call. A quick roadmap <laughs> for today's podcast. Um, it's going to hold the same trajectory as our usual um, format. We're first going to look at Rebecca's academic background and early professional life. And then we're going to turn to unpacking um, her current writing engagements and also look at some endeavors that she's got with a company called Be Seen. But we'll get into the logistics of how her career came to be, kind of the who, what, when, where, and why of her journalism story. Um, areas that she covers, genres, population specialization, all the range, everything like that. Then we'll turn our efforts towards um, unpacking some of the goals that Rebecca has for the next three years regarding her writing and um, her businesses at hand. And then we'll wrap everything up with advice that she may have for those of you looking to get involved or emulate some of her um, life work. So Rebecca, you have um, so much going on. I'm gonna read a quick bio before um, I start peppering you with questions for everyone listening so they have a healthy background on you. Rebecca Sager is a nationally published journalist her work has been featured in Playboy, AARP, NBC Latino, the Los Angeles Times, Bustle, Vice, Hemispheres, and Cosmopolitan Magazine, to name a few. A culture and lifestyle writer, Sager started as an unpaid blogger in 2007. She has covered the renaissance of the U.S.-California-Mexico border, Art Basel, Comic-Con, Coachella, New York Fashion Week, California's wildfires, and the Flint water crisis. She profiled such luminaries as actor Billy Porter, fashion designer Jason Wu, jazz great Arturo Sandoval, iconic drag queen RuPaul, actor and restaurateur Danny Trejo, Randy Jones of The Village People, model and activist Amber Rose, David Joyner, the man who lived inside Barney costume and later became the Tantra sex practitioner, and Jonathan Goldsmith, a.k.a. Dos Equis, most interesting man in the world. 
For more information and to view a full list of her stories, you can visit her website, RebeccaSager.com. So Rebecca, before we get into your current writing and kind of the story that got you there, can you start us off with your academic background and early professional life? So I had, we talked about earlier, kind of like an odd trajectory to journalism because I went to a high school for the performing arts. I grew up in Washington, D.C., It was called Duke Ellington High School for the Arts, and I studied theater. And then when I graduated, I really only wanted to go to either Juilliard or Carnegie Mellon was my backup. I did not get into Juilliard, gave like a horrendous audition to get in, (laughs) did, did not get in, and then was really depressed when I got into Carnegie Mellon because I didn't know so much about it. My mom and but parents were like, this is, this is thrilling. This is mm-hmm. amazing. Carnegie Mellon's a you know, wonderful school. So, um, so I only applied to two schools. So I ended up at Carnegie Mellon and um, it is a conservatory um, training program for actors. It's really competitive. I didn't know any of that when I went. Um, and uh, overall, I, I mean, I got a great education, but I, I kind of quickly discovered that I kind of didn't want to become an actor, but I was already going and I was a junior by the time that happened and didn't really, couldn't think of another thing to do with my life. So finished, um, went to New York, tried my hand at, at acting and, you know, got very, very close, met a lot of directors. Spike Lee was one at the time I met several times for auditions and, Um, but it just never really hit with me. So, um, part of it was as a biracial person, not looking really black enough or white enough. And at the time now, maybe that might be okay in 2020, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, back then it just, there weren't a lot of people who looked like me, so it wasn't a great fit. Um, so I ended up kind of just easing my way out of it and, and, at around the same time, getting married, having a, starting a family. We were in Washington, D.C., moving out to California. And my, um, and, you know, I was a mom. I was a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, my now ex-husband is a journalist. And so I was around a lot of that. I edited a lot of his work. I saw his process. He was really successful. I think I kind of gleaned all that but never thought of myself as a journalist, never really thought that's where I would end up. Hmm. I, I was living in San Diego, and so I was volunteering at different or, with different organizations, and one of them was um, a school for homeless teenagers uh, called the Monarch School in downtown San Diego. And um, initially, the idea was that I would put on a play. Well, the problem with the homeless community is that it's very, it fluctuates. You never know who's going to be there from week to week. So a play is pretty difficult. You cast a play, somebody doesn't show up. It's pretty difficult for those who are there. So I started, I took the idea of kind of my life experience at the time of interviewing people and creating this narrative and, and with theater, which I was really well-trained to do and combined that and had the kids do kind of written journalistic monologues. So they could interview each other, um, but they could write their own stories. And then we ended up hiring actors to act out their stories for them. And I think that was kind of my first real taste of, you know, I, I think I 
could maybe be good at this, but I wasn't the one doing the writing. But what I learned was I was really good with people. I was good at listening to people and kind of finding good stories. And I had kind of a knack for good stories. So, um, so that, that's kind of the, you, I can go into from there, I can kind of transition to how I started as a journalist, but do you want me to well, that's in, no, I think it's fascinating that it kind of began with you encouraging, you know, these youth around you um, population at, you know, at large homeless um, high school youth is an amazing um, exercise to examine in and of itself, but to encourage that kind of a, a journalistic enterprise through monologue because you couldn't put on a play. It's very creative of you, even in its inception. So all of this predated you becoming an actual journalist. You were encouraging yes. these young children yeah. to, via journalistic efforts, develop right. these monologues. So I like that, um, the, like the obtuseness of that. I, I wonder, so how did that kind of stretch you into developing pieces on your own? Was it enough editing come ahead, come up that there was an opportunity that came around about? I mean, I mean, I was helping them to edit their work. I think that is some, that was kind of innately part of it. I think um, I found it to be something that it was a way I could use acting um, for something that was, I could do on my own, but it was still highly dependent on other people. And I think um, I turned to to writing when I really decided that I wanted to, because that program ended. And the thing that's the most frustrating thing to me about acting is that you, you although I love working with other people and working on a team, you can't do it by yourself. You can't just put on a show by yourself for no audience. You know, you need an audience. You need lights and sound and costumes and direction and a script. So, um, you know, I, it was a, around that time that um, actually I was working um, on the Obama campaign and I was just a volunteer making phone calls, trying to get people to, you know, sign up to register to vote. And um, I was just, you know, char politically charged up at the time. And so actually, you know, somebody said, well, hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you write a blog? And I, I was mm. like, huh, that's interesting. That's an interesting idea. And, it, you know, my mother had said to me years and years and years before, it's interesting that you married a writer because you've always loved to write. I didn't remember her saying that until years later. But um, when I started to write the blog, I thought, well, you know, I'm not really a mommy blogger. I'm not really writing about parenting stuff. It's interesting to me personally, but I don't know. I didn't, it wasn't interesting enough for me to write about it. So how, who do I find that I can write about? And at the time, um, the, uh, Obama got elected and it, and the economy crashed and we were in San Diego, living in San Diego. And, I started to hear about this renaissance that was happening on the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm. Those were a lot of the kids that I'd also been working with. So I was, and I'd been crossing the border just out of interest, just to go over for the day. But what was happening was there was, you know, gang violence. People weren't crossing. So uh, there was a there was this just transformation of Tijuana at the time, and so. Um, I thought between that and this economy, there's all these people I know who are trying, struggling to make businesses work in a time where, you know, the economy has crashed and they've dependent, 
They've depended mm-hmm. on tourism in the case of the border. They, they're depending on people with money, expense accounts. None of that's happening. So how are these businesses going to stay afloat? And it became a fascinating beat, you know, um, mm-hmm. where you could really, there were tons of young, independently owned uh, businesses. Many of them are owned by women. So it was a fantastic way to highlight their business, hopefully bring business. And it was interesting to me because I thought, how are these people going to survive? And everybody had different mechanisms for trying to make their lives work and their businesses um, sustain themselves. And so, and at the same time, Tijuana started and these you know, coffee shops and record stores. And it was like these millennial kids had spaces now that were cheap to rent where they could open things for themselves. And it became, well, if we're not going to, we don't have tourism anymore. How do we make our, you know, businesses survive? Well, we focus on ourselves. What do we want to do? And that kind of became what happened in San Diego. You know, prices came down at some restaurants, people band together doing interesting pop-ups kind of sprouted out of this time because it was all a way of like, just, you know, how do we survive? And um, no one was writing about it. And Mm -hmm. um, so I got lucky because somebody saw what I was doing and I was literally writing these blogs and I didn't, we didn't have social media was just starting. So Mm -hmm. this is 10 years ago. So I just would do um, a mass email with a link to the, to the blog and my friends would say, you know, oh, good job. Or, oh, I have to try that store. Would I have to go to that boutique and try that? Or, oh, now we'll cross the border. It's, you know, whatever. So it just kind of blossomed from there. And somebody picked it up and said, why don't we make this a column? And uh, an editor who'd left because of downsizing at San Diego Magazine started, a doc, you know, as an editor-in-chief of a dot-com. So he said, why don't you make this a, a blog and it, uh, you know, a column and we changed the name from Schmyway or the Highway, which is what I called it, to Shop Local SD for San Diego. And, um, and that's really how it kind of, that's how it started. That was the start of it. I was in San Diego and, you know, it was really kind of just trying to find that unique angle. And I think if anything, if there's any through line for me, that's what it's been. It's trying to find that because I didn't wasn't trained as a journalist and mm-hmm. I didn't have years and years of writing experience under my belt. So I fit, you know, so I was learning to, how to be a good writer with editors kind of being kind of out of the kindness of their heart. They knew I had good ideas, but I, I was inexperienced. Yeah. So that's Yankee though. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, you know, that's cowgirl style. It's the old West. Right. It's like, that's right. how people, you know, it's Dorothy Parker. It's how people used to jump in. It wasn't all yeah. of this massive amounts of training necessarily learning in the field, right. particularly in something like journalism, you know, it's, it's, it's filled with zeitgeist. I mean, you, it's yes. the spirit of the times and journalism now certainly isn't what it was 15 years ago. And so right. it's changing daily. So it, it's one of those things that I think almost might be more fortuitous to learn in the field. How long did you stay with, well, first of all, how long did Schmyway or the highway stay <laughs> before it became Shop Local SD? And then how long did you stay with Shop Local SD? 
Um, I mean, I think the transition was pretty quick. It was like under a year that, that, um, that this editor picked it up and then it became shop local SD and I still have shop local SD. Um, but since I'm not really covering, but that, that was a great calling card because it got me to San Diego magazine and it got me to San Diego union tribune. So San Diego Magazine was, gave me this really, really tiny little contract of $10,000 for the year. That was my salary. And believe me, I was really excited. Mm-hmm. And, but I wanted to, so they wanted me to cover local fashion. So I said, okay, fine. So we kind of covered like the fashion designers and the boutiques that were opening, whoever, whatever big designer would come to San Diego to Fashion Valley Mall, I would go and interview them. And then I suggested, why don't I fly myself to New York and cover Fashion Week? And I had no idea what I was doing, but um, it had just moved to Lincoln Center from from uh, okay I can't, from the park, I can't remember Bryant Park to Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. So it was, and there was like this tiny little space in the middle of Lincoln Center where there was Wi-Fi because no one knew that you absolutely <laughs> needed Wi-Fi then. Right. So yeah. it just kind of started and, and no one was going because it was all very new. And so I had access and I had a friend I could sleep on her couch and basically blog from Lincoln Center live to San Diego Magazine's website. So I did that for a few months. I covered that for them. And then they felt, ended up, I ended up leaving because they felt that it was too big. Like it was like, we want to focus on local. Why are you trying to push us? So, um, so I kind of, okay, fine. So I ended up, um, but when I went, well, I'll go back. When I was in New York, I'd met a woman who at the time was the fashion features editor at InStyle and met her mm. through, through friends. And so she, I reached out to her and I said, I need a mentor. I need like someone to kind of guide me. And she was like, I'm all about women helping other women. So Mm -hmm. she's like, I cannot leave my desk. I do not have time to go to lunch or coffee with you. But if you come to my desk, just I'll eat a sandwich while we talk. I have 15 minutes, you know, and she basically gave me a, um, a template of how she did it and how she thought I should do it. As I said, I want to sit on your side of this desk, like in New York, how do I get there? And she said, okay, you need to build your clips locally. And then those will give you eventually enough credibility for a national outlet to publish you. So that's what I was like, okay. So all the money I made basically went back into like, sending myself places and then hopefully uh connecting those stories to an editor locally initially and then um she so you were doing ad hoc self-assigned ad hoc work to yeah pitch. basically yeah. yeah she connected me with fox news latino who wanted everything from the border because no one was willing to cross the border at the time and so i c- did the first like Tijuana designers, you know, and they took it and they were willing to take everything. And that's how I kind of started writing nationally. Um, Even while I was basically, since I've been a freelancer, even through the last few jobs that I've had as a full-time staff writer, I never really give up my freelance. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, I probably nine months out of the year that I worked at Fox News Latino in New York, because I, I am eventually did work for them as a staff general assignment reporter. Um, during that time, I stopped because I was writing every single day. That's how I covered the Flint water crisis. I met, you know, you're in New York, so it's kind of like you're doing, it's not really local because they're a national website, but you have access locally to just like you do in LA to celebrities and to big events. Mm -hmm. So I could kind of get out of the office, but also I didn't have to get out of the office to cover Flint. So everything to has kind of built on everything else. So, I mean, San Diego got me to, I worked in San Diego. Then I got to Dr. Phil. Then from there I got from, from Dr. Phil, I ended up going to New York to Fox news Latino, then Fox news Latino closed. And I ended up coming back um, to LA. Did you so, write for the Dr. Phil show or did you interview for them? So I was working on the Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil.com has a website that promotes episodes of the show. But then at the time he had a vertical on Huffington post. Mm -hmm. And it, so he needed a ghost writer. So he had an, um, a ghost writer that he'd hired in New York. She was kind of like my editor, but my, my idea to her was we have all these expert guests that come onto the show and no one really like, does anything with them. You know, he talks to them on the show and they're happy because they're on Dr. Phil's show, but they'd be even happier to have, you know, additional coverage in Huffington Post. So I kind of convinced her that we could take some of those people and do like breakout columns for Dr. Phil because they were doing, they needed constant content on Huffington Post. So I was doing that. Plus I was doing social media because it was kind of like just an all, all hands in situation and so I was in the control room doing so well, I want to talk also. a little bit about that because your career has the um, unique and um, fantastic um, well perhaps even um, demonic moment of <laughs> entering into social media I mean it you know and, and people there are going to be novels and encyclopedias dedicated to this and I don't have to go through all of it but the way that writing changed in particular you know we can get into social decorum and things of that right social media right. changed absolutely everything yeah and I think that news and a lot hard news and those were kind of the final people to fall you know or not yeah. fall but really yeah. acquire yeah. it seemed yeah. like there was a stronghold for a long time of like nope we're doing things this way and then it slowly yeah. kind of came to be when you had it come about, because you had this kind of um, self-made journalistic, you know, um, career and background, did you find the absorption or the incorporation of social media in your writing career to be more fluent than your colleagues, or was it um, strange? You, you say like, you know, you're doing some social media for Dr. Phillips to a bunch <laughs> right. of writers that were like, yeah. yeah, all of a sudden I was in charge of the Twitter account and I have no idea how that became my purview. Well, that was kind of what, I mean, when I started the blog, I had to, I, I threw myself into social media because mm -hmm. you, you, you couldn't not, I mean, you had to. So because from, I got the job at San Diego Union Tribune, not because I wanted to be a reporter. They had plenty of those, although I had to beg them to let me be a reporter, but I really got in there because they thought I knew so much about social media because I had been, I, I was given this 
the awarded best blogger in San Diego by San Diego Magazine. <laughs> and so they thought, best blogger, she must know about social media. And I mean, I, I knew whatever I was self-taught. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I guess that was probably more than other people. Now, you yeah. know, I mean, I have friends who their kids are like they have a master's degree in public relations and they understand Facebook in a way that I cannot comprehend. I mean, they just are way above me in terms of analytics and, you know, their understanding is much deeper. But at the time I was at the, at the Union Tribune, I was training other reporters who were begrudgingly going and having mm -hmm. to do social media. They were pissed. They were like, we have to go in the field. We have to tweet about this story. We have to come back and file the story now, you know? And then I, I mean, Dr. Phil, I got thrown into it in a, in a major, major way. I wasn't the one directly posting, but I was editing someone who was posting all of the content. All of it had to go through everybody's hands before anything could go on so on on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So I I was learning as I was going, but I was also expected to be an expert in it. Mm -hmm. And then at at Fox, basically you put it up on Facebook or Twitter. I did launch their Snapchat channel. That they came to me and asked me to to do that. Um, and I needed a tutorial from my friend's daughter and we sat at Chipotle for like 30 yeah. minutes. And, yeah. like, and then, I mean, I liked it. It was actually really fun. I did an entire, I did a Snapchat was supposed to be covering the Puerto Rican day parade. I was going to like be fun. And I was just taking pictures and doing little drawings on it, it was so easy. And then Pulse nightclub hit. So I get a call from my editor, like stop the Snapchat of the Puerto Rican day parade, it makes us look like we don't care about, because when Pulse broke, mm -hmm. nobody knew. At first it was like, oh, there was a shooting. Oh my God, there's a catastrophic shooting. Yeah. So I said, I'm not gonna stop, but what I'm gonna do is we're gonna cover this. We're gonna use Snapchat, but we're gonna cover it by interviewing these huge um, contingents of uh, gay people who are, at the Puerto Rican Day Parade, who yeah. were from Miami. So it was perfect. So we used Snapchat, which was a, an odd kind of thing, but it worked um, if you're fluid enough, you know, to make it work. Now Snapchat's kind of, I don't even know if anyone's using Snapchat anymore. I guess maybe a little bit, but it's kind of, you know, veered away. It's getting it's dabbled in. It's not the darling that it was supposed to yeah. become, you know, right. but Instagram's no longer the darling. People are getting off. They're tightening up their algorithm. Right, um, which is great, but yeah, it's supposed to turn to um, Pinterest and YouTube are the next yeah. girls of that yeah, moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh God, Pinterest was—I mean, there were editors at San Diego Union Tribune who were—they had design columns, and I and I had to teach them how to use Pinterest, and it seemed like the most important thing in the world, you know, um, <laughs> at the time. Now I'm sure they're happy that it's not, but um, but now in in my job now, half my job is spent making sure that the news is socialized, you know, and mm -hmm. looking at Chartbeat, looking at Google Analytics, my, my supervisors, you know, news uh, directors and program, they're all want to know what's working and why. I still don't know if there's an answer to that. I mean, I've told him regularly that I think it's like throw it on the wall and see what sticks. I mean, I think timing is 
knowing your demographic is, but mm -hmm. thinking that you can game the system by um, figuring out every Wednesday at noon, you know, you're going to capture that audience. Not necessarily, you know. No, especially in that, I mean, in, in your industry, I think there's a lot of money made and a lot of tears um, shed over someone <laughs> promising, you know, yeah, numbers oh yeah. based on Google Analytics because they're they're real numbers, but interpretation of them is, you know, archaic Latin to most yeah. people. And so yeah. you kind of say, look, they mean this, but they may very right. well not necessarily be correlated. Yeah. Um, so I love, yeah, everyone I talk to talks about Google, their, their Google analytic numbers, but no one quite knows exactly what that means in correlation to their career or self-worth. Not, not really. Yeah. I mean, it makes people happy when there's lots of engagement, but, mm. um, and, and it makes me happy if I, if I have a story and I, I really want to have a reach. But I mean, I think now it's impossible to, well, maybe not impossible, but from the people that I know, I don't know any journalists who have the great good fortune of not having to um, be a part of social media. I don't know anyone now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I just don't. I think it's become they're 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 kissing cousins. You have to be able to understand both, and it's the way that you promote yourself and your work. Um, Absolutely, so. yeah, it is. It's it's a tool of communication. I mean, you can yeah. kind of get past some of the laborious. I think in the beginning, it was the informality. It was a lot of the you know idiosyncratic details. It was the childishness attached to it. Right. But once you get past that, it's another lens. It's another language of communication, you know, and, yeah. and I'll just yeah. kind of move on with it. I'm wondering with your, so you've started, you've launched into another endeavor called Be Seen. Can you um, kind of walk us through that a little bit? So, you know, I love what I do as a journalist, but I'm dependent again on um, pitching to editors and what are the limitations? I mean, now we have AB5, so in California, which limits freelancers to 35 stories uh, a year for that outlet. Um, mm. Content, brand content marketing, if you love to, as, as I see it, if you love to write, this is just another avenue where you can write about something. Um, you're not dealing with the kind of budgetary constraints that you're dealing with in editorial um, journalism. I mean, I've, I was laid off at Dr. Phil with 13 other people. Three of them were pregnant women. I mean, it's ruthless. I then went to New York for Fox News Latino. When Trump was elected, Trump, Fox News Latino went under because it just wasn't in alignment with their brand any longer to refer to Latino people as undocumented as opposed to illegal. And so it, the, the site went under, but you know, if it wasn't a political or ethical decision, it's a monetary decision. If it's not a monetary decision, it's somebody buys it and just decides to go a, with a different, you know, go with a different direction with that outlet. Um, you know, I think, it's just too, uh, it just fluctuates too much. So if we can open ourselves up, and I'm doing this with my husband because um, he's a fantastic editor and, um, and a great writer and a photographer, we thought, let's try to see if we can take these years of experience that we have and um, create something where we have a little bit more control and we can make money that we deserve to make for what we create. Um, you know, 
I think it, we all got hit in the head when in 2008 journalism fell and you did have bloggers like who just kind of, um, you know, watered down the content to the point that people who were professional journalists for a very long time were competing with people who just were like, you know, people on the street who could just throw something up on their phone. And um, I think we're getting back to that. I know an outlet like Medium used to, anyone can write for Medium. You can sign up for Medium. If you want to write, you can put your content there. But if you want to pitch to an editor, you get a dollar a word. Now, we should be way past a dollar a word because that's what it was a really long time ago. That was a starting point for writers. Mm -hmm. And then we had to go through all this other stuff to get back to this. Um, but it's still just to, it's, it's just a career uh, uh, that's in flux. And I'd rather try to open more avenues. Um, if you have a skill and you, you know, it seems to me like the more places you could try to, to, um, to garner, you know, money, garner opportunities, garner ways of just getting your content out there. To me, um, if you love to write and like to work with words, it's just one more big opportunity that makes sense. It just makes sense. Yeah. So what is BCN? What's the niche? How does it, is it content marketing? Who can approach it? Who can work for it? How do you help people out? What, who are your clients? So we've just started. We're hoping to target um, businesses, you know, like one of the, th we're, we're internally kind of going after people that we know right now we're starting with our own network. So that would be, um, for example, um, a company that has clients like uh, Rebel Mouse, which is a platform. So Rebel Mouse is a platform where you can launch your, your website. And um, clients come to Rebel Mouse to launch their website, but the clients don't have enough content. And one of the things, they have this great product, but they just don't have enough content. So um, we would go, go in and we would say, okay, let's clean up the CEO bio. Let's look at your website. Are your, is, is what you're saying about your brand really representative of your brand? Um, we were targeting, we, you know, nonprofits. We'd like to target um, universities. I mean, we're kind of open at this point to see where things go. Um, I don't know. It could end up technology. It could end up medical. I mean, I think health and wellness, you know, it'll be interesting to see where we end up kind of falling. I think we're, we're at this point, it's just feels like it's a wide open. Space. Well, it is. And it, I think it's because of, um, and I don't know which one happened first, if the industry became that way, and then you, um, you guys decided to move in and clean things up or vice versa. But um, there's this incredible need to um, kind of flush out, you know, some of the more succinct nature of even some of the best um, websites for communication companies are just lost and convoluted. You know, yeah. I myself doing research, I fancy myself a really fast researcher. I've been in the game a long time and um, everyone is pitching themselves as a coach 
and a mentor <laughs> and all yeah. of these terms that are just useless now, you know, and right. in the beginning, we're pretty hyperbolic to begin with anyway. And um, nobody's defining themselves, defining their terms, defining their services. And so I think that, you know, this kind of uh, watchdog service of coming in and really fleshing out the axiomatic roots of what someone is, what they're providing, their service, their tool, anything like that, their brand, all of that unification is wildly necessary on every front. So I, I think you're right. And I think helping people tell their story. I think as a journalist, one of the things that, um, you know, when you sit down and talk to someone, you know, as you know, on a podcast, you start to get people's stories and they didn't even know that they had that story. You know, if you have a brand, yeah. for example, it may be a fantastic brand, but it's not reaching communities of color. Well, okay, but maybe that they, they're doing something every day and every year and they maybe they contribute money or maybe they have stories from the, the people who work there that they just never mind those stories. And it's that kind of thing where we can kind of go in and using just plain kind of who, what, where, when, why journalism to try to clean up what their, the, the, their voice and find and help them find their voice. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I think that's kind of, yeah. that's, that's what we're hoping to do. So given that, are your goals for the next three to five years to just clean up American um, <laughs> literature at large, all, all copy on the, on the web? All copy on the planet. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's hard to, you know, th that three-year goal always, it always, um, mm. you know, it's a toughie. But I think if I had any goal for us is that um, we would be able to to, to work from wherever we live. That's kind of where we're, that's really the number one thing that we're focused on now is to be able to go on vacation, get up in the morning in our great hotel and work and, um, and, you know, say we're going to spend X amount of time in this place and still be able to work. So it's partly, yeah. I think the goal for the company is to make enough money that we can obviously survive and do well and feel great, but also to have the freedom so that we're really just not so dependent on um, one organization. We can kind of, we have multiple sources of income and, um, and we get to kind of be creative and pick and choose. And yeah. um, to me, that would be like the dream. That's the dream. Absolutely. Freedom, yeah. right? Global citizenship. Freedom. I like that. Yes. <laughs> um, so if you ran into somebody tomorrow who, um, she was locking along, caught your um, attention for a minute and said, listen, I just got done with Carnegie Mellon and a stint in New York city. Acting was not my gig. I appreciate the time there. I'm going to turn to doing some writing. I'm not sure exactly what to do or how to get started. What are the top three pieces of advice you would give her? Um, I would say to her, find what you really are most interested in writing about first off. Um, because if you're, if you're dedicated and devoted to that thing and that thing help, you know, you wake up in the morning excited to do that thing, then you'll be willing to, and, and somehow prepared to face 
the challenges of that, the, the pitches that get rejected and the people who say no to you, but you can keep going. So um, I think finding that thing that you love to do is critical. I also think we live in a world where you can do so much without other people. You can start a blog, you can, mm. you can put it on a website, you can do a podcast. Um, and then don't think of those things necessarily as the as the end, but as the beginning, as the modern form of a calling card, you know, um, you never know where things will lead. And lastly, and absolutely, you know, make your friends close, keep your friends close and your enemies closer because those connections, um, the networking and, and, meeting people and not burning bridges has been to me has been pretty vital like you never know when you'll need that person to help you out in some way so mm -hmm. put your ego aside because this is not a business that is i don't think you can thrive on having an ego i mean i think you have to take jobs sometimes that are less money than you want to take it certainly in the beginning and um you have to be willing to accept that this editor may love what you did and this editor may not like what you did and you have to make those changes and those adjustments um, or this client, if it's be seen, whatever, you know, to, or if, you know, it's to me, I, I have a huge ego and about my own self personally, you know, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I don't have it in my work because it's not going to help me. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just not, you have to be able to accept that, you know, you have to be able to accept that kind of criticism. So absolutely those would be my three things. Yeah. So find what you're most interested and passionate about. So you can wade through some of the beginning muck. Um, yep. There's plenty of mediums to get out there and start writing to keep you going and keep yes. your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I like it. Those are excellent. <laughs> well, we are out of time, but I want to say thank you so much for taking um, the time this new year. 2020 is a is going to be a good one. I can feel it in my I bones. I think so too. Thank you. Thank you Absolutely. for having me. Thank you. You guys, we've been talking with Rebecca Sager. You can contact her at RebeccaSager.com. And um, yeah, thanks again, Rebecca. And until Thank we talk you. again next time, everyone, thank you for your time. And remember to always bet on yourself. Slunch.